Thanks for listening to this audio resource from Sovereign Hope Church. And just to update you, thanks in large part to many of you, uh, we've been able to purchase a new home in central Missoula. And there's a lot of work ahead of us when it comes to making another warehouse our church home. And you can continue to contribute to remodel and renovation funds at achurchbuilding.com. But we just want to express to you how grateful we are for your support. And we hope that this resource you're about to listen to will be a blessing for you as well. Before we get started, I just want to pray one more time um, and just ask God to humble our hearts um, and give us clarity and wisdom this morning. So let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, we are we're thankful for the Word of God. We're, we're grateful for your revelation to reveal to us truth, to reveal to us what you would have us know about ourselves, but Lord, most importantly about Jesus. Father, I pray that as we read this psalm, Um, As we look at what it means to be blessed, um, happy, and content, Father, I pray that um, you would humble our hearts, you would humble us before your word, Lord, and um, let the the information as well as the emotion and experience of this text move us to love you more deeply. Jesus, in your name we pray, amen. So we're going to be in Psalms 1, so if you have a Bible or an app or whatever, uh, feel free to open there. We're going to spend most of our time there. Um, but as we get started, I want to um, get rid of a little bit of baggage because we come to God's Word with our own understandings and our own ideas of what words mean and about what ideas mean. And so I actually just want to read the very first line of our, our text today, which is Psalm 1, the beginning of verse 1, which reads as this, four words, blessed is the man. Psalm 1, 1, blessed is the man. Now, blessed and blessed, it's not an uncommon word in our culture, um, especially in our Western Christian culture. It's a word um, at the center of our text this morning, and it's important that we don't misunderstand or misuse what it means, because I, I think that often we do misunderstand and misuse the word blessed today. Um, whether that's in the form of a hashtag on social media or even in conversations, the word blessed has a lot of baggage that, that we carry with it when we read a text like this. And so um, as, as we approach this text and as we approach Jesus' words in Matthew 5, we want to know what blessed actually means, what God means when he gives us the word blessed in Scripture. And so to give you an example of the misunderstanding I think that we have, if you were to go to Twitter right now, which I did this morning and yesterday, and uh, you were to search for the hashtag blessed, what do you think you would find? Because I found exactly what I thought I would find, a bevy of materialism and circumstantial prosperity. Uh, There was someone posting about getting their dream job. They gave this huge, long post about how hard they've worked, how much effort they've put in, and how how excited they are about this new opportunity in their life. And they closed this this post with the hashtag of blessed. Uh, There's another one posting, uh, NFL player, a rookie, signing his first NFL contract with a picture of it, and he closed it by saying blessed. Uh, there's another one of a, uh, a woman sitting in a penthouse apartment atop of Manhattan with this beautiful view of the city, um, that she'd achieved something so great, something she'd longed to achieve, and she closed it with hashtag blessed. There were hundreds more posts like this, like you go on f- hundreds and hundreds of them, and every single one of them was celebrating an achievement of a goal, the, uh, the ownership of a coveted item or the status of a position all of them celebrating their circumstances. And even many of those posts were acknowledging, like blessed has a religious tone to it. Many of them were acknowledging them, whatever the achievement was or the material 
circumstances they were in, they were acknowledging it as a gift from God. But what can end up happening as we read a text like Psalm 1 is we import that understanding of the word blessed into our reading of God's word. We see that word and what it evokes are material and circumstantial prosperity, and that's not a comprehensive understanding of what God means when he says the word blessed. A better way to understand that word is happiness or contentment from God. And often that can be in the form of a material blessing or circumstantial blessing or relational blessing, but often it's not. And that's what we're going to see today. For us, God is going to describe um, and give a description of what it means to be blessed, of what it looks like to be content. And he isn't going to describe a penthouse apartment, a cush dream job, or even a perfect relationship. He's going to describe the internal experience of a heart that delights in Jesus and the word of God. And so we, we are in a psalm, and so I think the last time I was up here, I, I taught on Psalm 19. Um, and so the psalms are songs meant to be sung, and so there is this emotive aspect to it. And so just like we sing songs before the sermon and after the sermon, there's this emotion that's coupled with truth, that we sing these big, beautiful truths in hopes that they shape our affections. And so I hope um, this morning that we feel this psalm. And there's two things I hope we feel that I, I believe that, the, uh, that David intended as he wrote it, that God intended for the Israelites as they sang it, and that's two things. The first is encouragement. Encouragement that walking with God, obeying him, delighting in him and pursuing Jesus will bring a contentment and a satisfaction that the temporary joys we chase just cannot bring. And the second thing, the second emotion I want us to feel is a unease and a warning, a warning that rejecting God Pursuing our own pleasures, our own joys and contentments will ironically leave us discontent. And both of these, these, these emotions, we can sum up with the idea, the big idea we're going to see in the text today. As we read this as Christians in 2020, the big idea we're going to see this morning is this. True contentment comes only from Jesus. Very simple this morning. True contentment comes only from Jesus. But along with that, we're going to look at what, what that contentment actually looks like in the Christian life and what that contentment actually means for the Christian. And we're going to see these three ideas and these three truths contained in this psalm. And those three ideas are, one, the content Christian delights in God's word, two, grows in faithfulness, and three, hopes in eternity. Delights in God's word, grows in faithfulness, and hopes in eternity. So our first point this morning uh, is delighting in God's word. The content Christian delights in God's word. And we're going to read that in Psalm 1, verses 1 through 2. So again, if you have your Bible open up there, um, it will be on the screen as well if you don't have a Bible. <clears throat> Psalm 1, verse 1 through 2. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So this first idea of blessing that we get from the author, the first idea of blessing we get in this psalm is about what that blessed man is not. The blessed man is not, or does not, walk in the counsel of the wicked, does not stand in the way of sinners, and does not sit in the seat of scoffers. Notice the comprehensiveness of those verbs, walking, standing, and sitting. From our activity to our passivity, 
The first thing that describes the content Christian, the blessed Christian, is not believing the empty promises of sin in our own hearts and the empty promises of culture. It is not the material and circumstantial prosperity that hashtag blessed promises us. And one of the things the author's going to do throughout this whole psalm is he's going to compare and contrast. He's going to, each section is going to have these contrasts that make it clear what what, what he means when he writes and sings these words. And so to fully understand what what, what it means to be a blessed man of God, we're going to see these contrasts that make clear what what the meaning is. And so read with me Psalm 1-1 and 1-2 again. And pay attention to the contrasts here between two different people. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. And on his law he meditates day and night. So putting both of those together, the positive of delight and meditation and the negative of not doing these things, we get a better idea of what David is after. We get a picture of God's people being different of being distinct, of being unique amongst the world. See, the gospel and God's word should influence everything about us as Christians. One of the things we like to say here at Sovereign Hope is the gospel for all of life. The gospel should change every single thing in our life, whether walking, standing, or sitting, from our activity to our passivity. The gospel moves and shapes everything for the Christian. That's one of the things actually people often find unpalatable about religion, right? Religion and faith is this idea of, of, of religious people, uh, specifically Christians, being different intentionally, of being distinct. And often what, 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 what they think about and what we think about is self-righteousness. We don't like self-righteousness. We don't like the pride of it. Some of the, 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 the most heinous villains in the New Testament when Jesus is alive are the Pharisees. And so much of that is because of their self-righteous, pompous pride at being righteous and good and set apart from the rest of the people. And so this, as a, as a, criti- as a criticism of Christians, that we are self-righteous rule keepers with our noses in the air. And for much of my life growing up, I, I didn't become a Christian until I was 20. So I grew up in the church. I grew up going to church. I grew up in a Christian school, Christian friends. And I had much of that idea, both for myself and the people around me, of what religion and faith was, of this rule-keeping, law-keeping, self-righteousness. Um, and that's an idea that many people bring as, we, as, they, as they read and understand this text. But what, what, what David's after here isn't as much about what the blessed man is not as much as it is about what the blessed man is. And it is the offer of something better. It is the promise of something better. Something better than our hearts and culture could have to offer. The point being made here is that the the content Christian delights in the instruction of God over and above the ways of the world in his own heart. That the source of joy, the source of satisfaction, the source of contentment and blessing is the word of God, the law of God, the truth of God, and the character of God, not the dictates of culture, And so what occupies the content man of God, what occupies his joy, is delight in God, delight in his promises, and delight in his instruction. But the thing is, is the world is appealing, right? It's appealing. Like, we want to be a part of it. Our hearts and our desires are compelling. If sinning and rejecting God weren't fun or even rewarding in a way, then there wouldn't be a temptation to participate in it. 
There wouldn't be a temptation if there wasn't a promise from our hearts, from the world of something better. And if you look around your life, as I look around my life, we can identify dozens and dozens and dozens of tempting promises made by our hearts and tempting promises made by the world around us that lure us, that tempt us. There's the hedonism, over-sexualization of our media and culture that promise pleasure and contentment at the end of relationships and dating culture. There's the greed of an, of a bet, and greed and envy of a better job that promises better pay, a bigger house, more comfort, more security, more prosperity. There's the lure of autonomy and rejecting God's authority with a promise of a life lived on your terms, how you want, where you want, why you want. What David is singing here, what the Israelites were singing here, is that true blessing begins with the law of God. And not just the law of God, but delight in the law of God and meditation on the law of God. But what does that mean? What does that mean? What does the law of God mean in this text? Well, for David and the Israelites singing this song, the phrase they're singing is actually this, uh, but his delight, that's the blessed man of God, is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. And so what they would have actually had in their mind as they sing that phrase, law of God, um, would have been the writings of Moses, the first five books of our Bible. The covenant promises God made to Adam. The covenant promises God made to Abraham. The covenant promises God made to Moses. And to get even more specific, it was the covenant promises of God and his, between God and his people to keep the law that God gave Moses on the mountain. They would have delighted in their distinctiveness and set-apartness for God amongst the people of the world. That God would give them a way to live that they might be his people and find favor in him. Whereas the rest of the world around them sought life on their own terms. They would have delight that God chose them despite their rebellion, despite their sinfulness. And that in their sin and rebellion, they might be restored to God, might be restored to God through the covenants that God had made with them, through the law. But what does this mean for post-cross Christians? What does is, what is delighting in the law of God mean for, for someone in 2020? Well, let's look at what the Apostle Paul says about the law in Romans chapter 7. So if you turn to Romans chapter 7, we're going to read verse 7, and then we're going to move really quickly up to chapter 8. So Romans chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says this about the law and part of its purpose. He says this, What then shall we say, that the law is sin? By no means. Yet if, yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had said, you shall not covet. See, the law of God first reveals for us and it diagnoses the heart of rebellion against God in the human. The ordinances and instruction of God flow out of the character of God. So to conform to the law of God is to conform to the character of God and be like him in his holiness. But we are inevitably weak. All have fallen short of the glory of God. All have sinned. And so the first thing the law does is diagnose our condition of fallenness before God. So Paul says that the law reveals our rebellious condition. But he goes on in Romans 8. In verses 1 through 4, he says this, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So he says the law condemns you. The law reveals your sin and condemns you. For the law of the, picking up verse 2, For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. 
For God has done what the law weakened by the flesh could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. In order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk according, not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. And pairing that with Jesus' words in Matthew 5, verse 17, Jesus says this about himself in his, in his relationship to the law. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law, to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. So you and I, with Jesus as the lens through which we view Scripture, can understand and delight and rejoice in the law. Because what the law reveals about us as sinners, Jesus fulfills as our Redeemer and Savior. We delight in the law because we delight in the Jesus who fulfilled it. In other words, we delight in the gospel. We delight in the gospel of Jesus. See, everything the law was meant to do for the Israelites in uh, revealing, uh, revealing to them about the, their sinful condition and setting them apart and giving them a righteousness to stand before God that they might be reconciled to him, Jesus fulfilled all of that. Jesus fulfilled all of that. Look at 2 Corinthians 5.21. It says this, for our sake, he made him, that's Jesus, made Jesus to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. See, as Jesus went to the cross and died, he took with him the sin of all who would believe in him. He took with him the condemnation of the law, which is why Paul can say there is no condemnation. He took with him the condition of our lostness. And as he rose from death and now gives the Christian new life, he gives us the righteousness of the perfect life he lived and the inheritance of that life. So that in Jesus, the diagnosis of our sin condition no longer defines us, Jesus' righteousness does. So we have the entirety of God's word. We have the entirety of God's word, all of which points to Jesus, and we delight in the beauty of a God that would send his son. We delight in a Jesus that would die for his people we delight in a life more satisfying because of it. We delight in eternity more promising because Jesus fulfilled the law where we couldn't. The blessed and content Christian delights in the word of God because we delight in the gospel of Jesus. The challenging and yet simple application of this is the content Christian hungers for his Bible. He loves his word want to know Jesus through that word. And there's this awkward experience for many of us as Christians because, you know, most of us don't hunger every single morning to wake up and spend an hour in his word and in prayer. We'd rather sleep in and hit the snooze button. We'd rather do something else. We'd rather put it off until later. We'd rather put it off until tomorrow, until tomorrow comes, and we put it off till tomorrow again. The awkwardness of that experience is that while we don't always read, and we, always, well, we don't always want to read God's word and dive in to the law of God, as a Christian, don't we want that desire to? Don't we want to want to? Well, I don't always want to dive into God's word. I want that desire to dive into God's word. That's kind of what Paul describes elsewhere in Romans, where he says, I do what I do not want to do, but I don't do what I want to do. That there's this war still happening. We're, we're, we're not sanctified yet. We're not perfect yet. And our sin still has sway over our hearts. 
But I think that is one of the things that draws the line between blessing and content and not. Contentment and discontentment. Charles Spurgeon says this about verse 2 of Psalm 1. He says, Man must have some delight, some supreme pleasure. His heart was never meant to be a vacuum. If not filled with the best things, it will be filled with the unworthy and disappointing. If we are not delighting in that which is worthy of our delight, we are delighting in something else. To grow in our delight of God's word is to grow in our contentment as people of God. I think it's really that simple. The reality of the Christian experience is growing out of our sin and into the image of Jesus, and that includes our delight in his word. Which actually leads us to the second point tonight. Tonight, it's not tonight, it's this morning. Which leads us to our second point this morning, which is um, the content Christian, the content man of God is growing in faithfulness. Let's read Psalm verses, chapter 1, verses 3 and 4. So he, he's talking about the blessed man of God, is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff that the wind drives away. The blessed man of God is always growing upward in his convictions. Remaining steadfast, remaining faithful, growing towards the Lord. Consider the imagery of the tree that the psalmist uses. A tree, a tree planted deep in the ground by a stream constantly being fed, constantly growing a constant supply of nutrients and water, constantly being fed what is necessary to grow into maturity, a tree that produces fruit, that that fruit might be a blessing to others and nourish others, a tree that is unwavering in the intensity of a storm that endures the harshness of the winter and in neither does it wither. This is how David describes the blessed one, the content one who delights and meditates on the law of the Lord. Content is the Christian that is so deeply rooted in the nourishing life of God's word that he cannot help but grow in his affections, that he cannot help but grow into maturity in his faith. This is the word picture to mark the content Christian as one who is constantly growing in their affections for Jesus, their fidelity to his instruction and commands, and growing in our rejection of sin. See, another way to put this, uh, it's not going to be on the screen, but in 2 Corinthians 3, Paul describes the Christian as growing to become more and more like Jesus. We are being transformed to be more like Jesus as he was perfect on this earth, to be perfectly obedient to God, to be perfect in our affections. And we don't arrive there, but we are growing towards that. Blessed is the man who is rooted in the streams of life, growing in faithfulness to become more like Jesus. Part of being content in Christ means not being content in your sin. Notice the contrast that verse 4 makes to make this clear. Verse 4, the wicked are not so, are not like a tree, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Now, I didn't know what chaff was. I mean, I had an idea that it was some kind of like like unusable plant part that comes off a plant and just blows in the wind, right? Um, But chaff is actually the dry husk that kind of protects a seed that once the seed is extracted on, say, like wheat, what you have left in the bits of, like, the the light, weightless bits is the chaff. And it's useless. It's blown away in the wind. It's, 
it, it, it's the discarded parts of the, of the wheat. So those that trust in the world's definition of satisfaction, those that trust in their own heart's definition of joy, of blessing, are like chaff. Those that trust in their own hearts over and above the promises of God are blown in their affections from one place to the next, constantly searching for meaning, constantly searching for satisfaction, never finding what was promised. There'd be moments of rest, moments of joy, moments of satisfaction to be sure. But as soon as the winds of culture change, as soon as your emotions shift a different direction, as soon as trial arrives at your doorstep, you have to look elsewhere for your meaning, for your satisfaction, and for your joy. Because it doesn't last. It's blown in the wind. It's never able to set down roots, never able to stand on the timeless convictions of truth, or goodness, or justice. A never-ending search for purpose, a never-ending search for contentment. And notice there's no in-between here. There's two, different, there's two different people described. There's the tree that grows and produces fruit and is flourishing, and there's the chaff that's blown in the wind. There is no lukewarm. Being content in Jesus does not mean being content in the sin of your life and living in the in-between, saying, oh, well, Jesus covers it all. Jesus covers the grace upon grace. I'll conquer, that, you know, I'll conquer that sin next week, next month. I can worry about that later. For the Christian in here, if you have sin in your life that you hide when you come to church or go to community group or go to your discipleship group with, if you have sin in your life that exists in that blind spot of your eye, if you have sin in your life that you are ignoring, that you pretend isn't there, you are robbing yourself of the blessing and contentment that God promises you. And as hard and challenging and as uncomfortable, as embarrassing as it might be to stop ignoring that sin, God has promised you greater blessing when it's replaced with obedience and faithfulness and sanctification and growth. What a beautiful God we have that would make obedience more satisfying than disobedience. That would make obeying his commands lead to more joy and, sing and happiness and blessing than disobeying him. There's contentment in our growth. There's blessing in our growth because at the end of our growth is a hope. The hope of renewal. That goal we strive for. That hope we strive for. See, the Christian is always growing upward towards Jesus, becoming more like him until the day we are conformed to his image and receive the inheritance that he earned for us. And that hope is the final mark of the content Christian in our text today. And that's that the content Christian hopes in eternity. Read with me Psalm 1, verses 5 and 6. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So the Lord knows the way of the righteous. So there's some kind of relationship here. Lord knows the way of the righteous. There's a relationship there. But what's the context of that relationship? What does it mean that God knows us in the context of this psalm? But as with the rest of the psalm, there's a contrast here, right? There's a contrast that makes clear what the intended meaning is. So let's look, read it one more time and notice the contrast. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the wicked will perish. The implication here is the difference between God's relationship to the wicked and God's relationship to the righteous at the gates of eternity. 
at the end, at judgment. One will be known by God and one won't. One will receive the gift of life and eternity and one will not. One will receive the blessing of eternal contentment and one will not. Unless we turn this into some kind of like uh, reward system for obedience, because we tend to do that, right? As, as we import our own meaning of blessed onto this text, we can import our ideas of what it means to be righteous. And, and, and so much of our life is working towards something and earning something and putting effort in to receive something back. And so um, it's not too far a stretch as we read this, that the Lord knows the righteous to want to strive for that righteousness in our own strength. Um, so we can... We can read this and read, I, I just got to be a good person. I just got to be righteous. I just got to be good. And that's how God's going to know me. And that'll earn me a place in the end. But fortunately, if we look back to our work in the beginning of the Psalms, we know that those who are in Christ, there's no condemnation. Those who are in Christ, Jesus earned that righteousness for us. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. There is no earning here. What this stanza of the Psalter is doing is reminding the Christian of where our hope is, of where our eternity is. And that looking anywhere but the Lord and his promises would only lead to destruction and ruin and discontentment. The third mark of the content the third mark of contentment in Jesus is a hope in eternity. In, in eternity. And there are a dozen to apply this. There are dozens and dozens and dozens of ways. Um, where we can place our hope in something that's going to fail us that isn't Jesus. We can place our, misplace our hope in something that is going to leave us wanting. We could, uh, we could talk, right now we could talk about COVID-19, right? Obviously. There's hope in finding a vaccine. There's hope in herd immunity. There's hope in flattening the curve. That when this is over, I can find contentment. I can get back to my job. I can get more financial security. I can get back to a place of relational contentment. Work and career, school and education, fitness and health, finances and security, relationships and marriage, children and parenting, retirement and rest. There are hundreds of spaces in our life where we place our ultimate hope. We could go on and on considering the nuance of each of these. We could. But I want to talk about one specific thing that is pertinent in 2020. Not coronavirus. But that's the election. Politics. We stand at the precipice of another election cycle. Every four years, the political rhetoric gets louder and the divisiveness seems to grow more deep, more deeply. And wherever we find ourselves on the political spectrum of thought and ideology, many of us find ourselves hoping in a political outcome. Many of ourselves find us hoping in a party or in a person. Some of us, that's every two years as, as mid-year elections or midterm elections come around. What we hope in is the restoration of what was once an ideal, but what was once great. What we hope in is the reconciliation of conflict and war. We hope in the equality and equity of people of all races, of people of all places, of people of all socioeconomic status. We hope in justice for the oppressed and marginalized. We hope in the prosperity of our friends and family and neighbors. And we hope in the security and comfort of our futures and the futures of our children all of which can tempt us to look to the levers of political power for answers and hope. And here's the, a lot of those ideals aren't bad. 
It's not bad to be concerned with that. There can be good work done in that. There can be God-glorifying work done in all of it. But that's not the point of our, of our text. The point of our text is an encouragement of what is ultimate. Politics may be worthy of our effort, but it is most certainly not worthy of our hope. Because on the other side of that hope is always despair. Despair if the other side wins the election. Despair when the other side eventually wins the election. See, the problem with hoping in politics is that even if your side wins, you're relying on broken people to fix a broken, to restore a broken world that only a perfect God can. There will always be something to fix because we will always need fixing. But the beauty of that truth is that God promises he will restore it. God will restore it all. The content Christian's hope is certain because the restoration of Jesus is certain. When the winds of political sensibilities change or whatever else you've placed your hope in fails you or whenever you reach the end of that hope and find it ultimately unsatisfying, the blessing of contentment remains steady like a tree because no matter the shift in circumstances, the hope of the gospel and eternity will remain. So to finish up our look at Psalm 1 this morning, I want to look at the other side of blessing. Um, we've spent so much of our time talking about what it means to be content and blessed and happy, in the, uh, whether it's material, material gifts from God, uh, circumstantial gifts from God, or more, most often the internal experience of the Christian. But what, um, how are we to read this? and process this psalm when contentment and joy are not our experiences. I imagine many of us in here have read and listened to this and found ourselves weary. The irony of preaching this sermon on the blessing of contentment is that I have been so utterly discontent with this. Contentment often doesn't, isn't the word we'd use to describe our experience. Sometimes happiness and joy aren't normative and constant in our walk. The ideals expressed here sound great. It makes sense. But they seem unattainable and far away. You are weary. You are restless. You are frustrated. That delight is in your experience. You feel more like chaff than the steadfast tree. And most certainly you find yourself hoping in something that might change and will leave you empty. If you've noticed in this psalm, the, David actually gives more words to the warning than he does to the encouragement. He speaks more to the warning than he does to the encouragement. And that's because no matter how many times we read the promises of God, the reality of our flesh and the temptation around us, we find ourselves walking, we find ourselves standing, and we find ourselves sitting on the empty promises of sin as if we need to experience it for ourselves. All of that to say, if you find yourself discontent, discouraged, frustrated, and restless. It's because you aren't delighting, growing, hoping in Jesus. Somewhere you are capitulating to the hopes of culture, the delight of culture. You're ignoring your sin. You're hoping in something frail and broken. You've bought into the lie of contentment from culture and not the promise of blessing from God to his people. Fortunately, by God's grace for every single one of us, Christian and not, 
Jesus stands holding open arms with the offer of life, the offer of sanctification, the offer of joy, the offer of blessing and contentment. Offering the blessings of God. He's offering you himself. He's offering you his life, what he earned, the inheritance that he earned. If you're a Christian in here and you're frustrated with your lack of growth, your lack of delight, your lack of hope in Jesus, there's only one place to go. It's what permeates this entire book, this entire revelation from God, and that's Jesus and his gospel. It's hoping in his righteousness, not your own. It's hoping in that satisfaction as a fruit of that and not satisfaction from something else. That's why every single week, so, sorry, if you're not, that, that's if you're a Christian. If you're not a Christian in here and you find yourself chasing and chasing and chasing something to satisfy, chasing and chasing and chasing something to find contentment and you can't ever seem to find that joy, that happiness, that blessing, the truth remains the same for you as it does for the Christian. There is one place to turn. It's the righteousness of Jesus. He became sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. That's why every single week up here, whether it's Tyler, whoever it is, is going to give the gospel away. Because as we read this, we can't help but see the gospel. For anyone, the most important truths we can know and be reminded of are the eternity-shaping truths of Jesus and his gospel. And this psalm is telling us that the inevitable fruit of a life lived to the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus is a contentment that no circumstance can take away from you. Paul talks about contentment in Philippians. He's under, he's imprisoned at this point, and um, I think I have it marked actually. Um, bear with me, I didn't mark it. <clears throat> Philippians 4, go to Philippians 4. Verse 11 through 13, Paul says this in his own broken circumstances. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. <clears throat> Excuse me. One sec. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Why? Look back to chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. As it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether in life or in death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. Whether poverty or plenty, persecution, prosperity, life or death, Material prosperity, material poverty, relational prosperity, relational poverty, whatever the circumstances are, there is contentment because Jesus is our life. Because regardless of our material, emotional, relational, cultural, or political circumstances, Jesus is still Lord. And eternity still waits there is much to delight in. So whether in the context of suffering and exile, like we're reading about in 2 Peter, uh, or, or in the encouragement of this emotional song, any weakness, any lacking, 
any hardship or suffering, any circumstance, there is always peace. There is always blessing. There is always contentment in the open arms of Jesus. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, once again we ask you to humble our hearts. Lord, reveal to us the depths of our misplaced hope, the weaknesses of our delight in anything and everything apart from you. Lord, encourage us in our stagnant and weary state. Lord, humble us to come to you on bended knee every single morning, to be reminded every day of the gospel of Jesus that shapes our affections and drives our delights. Father, I pray for the weary. I pray for the restless. I pray for those that who don't regularly experience the joy and contentment found in Jesus. Lord, that they would believe and return to the endless well of contentment in the gospel. Jesus, we love you. We need your help. We need your help. Our broken hearts are so fickle. We chase so much. We chase those empty promises so often. So Lord, give us a need and a desire and a, a compulsion to chase you and your word. Lord, we love you, and it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.